0: I read that if you had invested $1,000 in the stock market back in 1932 at the height of the Great Depression, that today that single $1,000 investment, just a one-time investment, would be worth roughly $5 million. Not a bad return over the years on that investment. Some investments, though, don't always turn out so good. Ted Turner's Time Warner Company merged with AOL in 1999, and the stock plummeted, and Ted Turner lost $7 billion. Actor Burt Reynolds one time invested in a restaurant chain called Folks. We used to have one here in town. It went out of business, the chain did, and he lost 50 15 million million on that restaurant chain loss. Prophetic name, wasn't it? Po folks. <laughs> when the stock market crashed in 1929, some people despairing even of life itself took their lives rather than face the future with their losses. Maybe that's part of the reason why Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Some people think that land is a really good investment. And some real estate purchases are really good. Some people really enjoy their timeshares, but I've read the most regretted purchase in real estate is a timeshare because they're hard to get rid of. That is, they're the most regretted unless you include extraterrestrial real estate. Lunar Embassy has been selling real estate on the moon for $37 per acre, and they have sold some 300 million acres thus far of the moon's property. <laughs> I read one review from a purchaser. This is what the purchaser wrote. Lunar Embassy, crazy site. Out to make a lot of money. Don't care about the consumer, In quote. Seriously, you had to buy property on the moon to figure out all they wanted to do was make money and didn't care about the consumer? My goodness. Despite being the creator of all things, Jesus never owned property in this world. Jesus never had a 401k. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't own property. I, I own a home. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a 401k or some kind of retirement fund. Most of us, God expects us to plan for the future. I'm just saying that maybe sometimes we get our priorities out of order. There was only one investment that mattered to Jesus, and that was people. Jesus had said early, he didn't know anything. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And when he died... The only thing that he did have was a seamless robe that the soldiers at the foot of the cross gambled for uh, to take home with them. Jesus loved people. That's where he invested his time, energy, and resources. Last week we saw how the, one of the accusations hurled at him by his opponents is one that's dear to us. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus was a friend with sinners. Jesus loved people. Jesus loved the multitudes that came to hear him preach and teach because he preached like nobody else had ever preached before. As a matter of fact, Matthew records in his gospel, the ninth chapter, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, that is such a powerful word. He was Moved with compassion. He had compassion on them. The word compassion is like a a punch to the gut the way it feels. When you are moved by compassion, it's like I can't help but respond. I can't help but make a difference. And Jesus was that way when he was moved with compassion. He could not resist the passion to help. He just loved people. Out of the multitudes, Jesus carved out a group. For a special short term mission project. Luke tells us this in chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, oh, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. And when those 72 came back from their short-term mission trip, they were just overjoyed by what they had experienced. About 18 months into his earthly ministry, Jesus began to profoundly pour himself into a group of 12 men. These 12 men would hold the key place in God's plan for the rest of time. The whole success or failure of the kingdom of God, the church, rested on these 12 men and what they would do after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These apostles paid dearly for their faithfulness, but their investment has paid off. Look around the room this morning. Uh, between here and the West Side campus and the Bedford campus, there'll be some 3,000 people that will meet in just this congregation this morning. That doesn't count when you look around the town, when you look around the state, when you look around the country, when you look around the world. And I'm telling you that there are places around the world today where the church is just absolutely exploding. It's worked for 2,000 years. What these guys did, mentored by Jesus, made a difference forever. And among the 12, Jesus had a group of three that he personally mentored in a special way. Peter, James, and John. He took those three with him up onto the mountain of transfiguration. He took those three into the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed the night before the cross. Peter was the first to preach the gospel. James was the first to give his life as a martyr. And John outlived all the rest of the apostles, leaving as a heritage to us the wonderful, hopeful book of revelation jesus mentored these three for a special role you see there was only one commodity that captivated the time energy thoughts and prayers of jesus for 33 years people and it's the only part of life here that has the potential to move on to the life to come we will not take the land that we've bought here. We only have it for a short time. We will not take the money. We only get to use it for a short time. The only thing you can take out of this world is not a thing. It's a person. So maybe we ought to learn from the example of Jesus that the, that the stuff that is worth investing in most is the lives of other people. I believe God is calling us to be as faithful in investing in others as Jesus was. And as the church has been for the last 2,000 years. Faithful to that calling. Faithfulness is a journey. It's heading in the right direction. There's ups and downs along the ways. There's, there's uh, stumbling and falling along the way. But we stay the course. And if we stay the course, we are described as faithful faithful. Author Eugene Peterson describes faithfulness in these words, a long obedience in the same direction. Doesn't mean perfection. It just means that we're obediently following in the right direction. So even if you haven't invested in others up to this point in time, you're still on the journey. We've still got time that you can change the pattern. You can say, well, I haven't done much up to this point in time, but tomorrow... I can start a new chapter in my life. You see, when we mess up, and all of us mess up, I mess up, you mess up, when we mess up, we don't just give up. No, we get up, brush ourselves off, and we start again. That's the way God designed us. So you say, I haven't been doing a very good job of that for the last umpteen years of my life. Well, fine. Okay, you can't go back and change the past, but you can change the future. So pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start investing in the lives of other people. I have watched now five of our six grandchildren learn how to walk. It is harder as a grandpa than it was as a father doing that. Because at this point in my life, I just kind of want to shelter them. You know, when I see them teetering and tottering in the imbalance, and I know what's going to happen, I want to rush over them. I want to put my arms around, kind of protect. Actually, what I wanted was just carry them and spare them the whole whole ordeal. (laughs) But I know that wouldn't be good. You know, I I don't want them getting hurt on my watch, but I know that they have to, to take the tumble. I know they have to plop on the floor. I know they have to get these knots on their head, everyone. Because that's how you learn to walk. And until you walk, you can't run. And those are necessary means for us in life. You, you don't want to rob somebody of that. Well, God knows that too. God knows that sometimes we stumble and fall. And we make mistakes. We drop the ball. We don't get the job done like we're supposed to. And sometimes God lets that happen to us. So we learn the lesson of what it means to walk faithfully with him. So that we will do what he did. That we will pour into the lives of others like he did. So if we're going to walk like Jesus and invest like Jesus, that means loving people like Jesus. That means that we as a congregation need to become people who help people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. It means we value the whole concept of mentoring, mentoring across generations. Now you can't look through the Bible and not see mentoring. Okay, Uh, In the Old Testament, Moses mentored or invested in the life of Joshua. And it was Joshua that took the nation of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. The high priest Eli poured his life into a little boy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel grew up to be the greatest judge in that 300 year period of Israelite history that was ruled by the judges. Elijah poured his life into his successor, Elisha. And Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah had done. In the New Testament, Tabitha mentored a group of ladies in the church. And when she died suddenly and unexpectedly, the women were so distraught, they called for the apostle Peter. He came quickly and by the power of God raised Tabitha up from the dead and restored her to that wonderful mentoring role. Husband and wife team Priscilla and Aquila mentored the great orator Apollos and taught him the word of God more completely. Barnabas, a name which means son of encouragement, mentored a brand new convert, a young man by the name of Saul, who God changed his name to Paul, and he became the great apostle to the Gentiles, writing more books and letters in the New Testament than anyone else. And Paul, I think he became the best mentor of all. He mentored a whole host of young men and women throughout his ministry. Young men like John Mark, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Tertius, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Tychicus, Achaicus, Onesimus, Philemon, Epaphras, Artemis, Aristarchus, even members of Caesar's own household he mentored. And those are only the names we have in the New Testament. Imagine how many more Paul touched with his life as he poured into people. Those in the church who made all the difference were the ones who invested their time, energy, and resources in others, not things. David Platt wrote, he said, If the Son of God thought it necessary to focus his life on a small group of men, we are fooling ourselves to think we can mass-produce disciples today. God's design for taking the gospel to the world is a slow, intentional, simple process. Well, yes, it may be simple, but it is costly, and it is not easy. It requires great effort. But it's worked for 2,000 years, and I think it will continue to work until the Lord comes home. That's not the question. The plan will work. It's just whether or not we're going to work the plan, whether or not we'll drop the ball at some point in time here. So let me ask you a question. Are you investing in anyone spiritually? Are you pouring your life into some other Christian to help them be stronger? Are you helping a seeker who's looking for the truth to find the truth in Jesus Christ? What are you doing to invest in others? Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I'm telling you, a dull knife is absolutely worthless. And through the years, I've looked for good sharpening tools for kitchen knives and my pocket knives. I've tried whetstones, and I've tried ceramic rods, and I've tried this, and I've tried that. I got a a gift one year for Christmas in in the stocking, uh, and it's called Speedy Sharp. Best thing I've ever found for sharpening knives. I don't know what kind of hard metal it is on the end of this, about three quarters of an inch, but you rub that across the blade of a knife and it is amazing how it will begin to take the rough spots out and take the dull places off and hone that back into a sharp tool and instrument. Every time I pull this out of the kitchen drawer to sharpen a kitchen knife, I am reminded as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. See, when you invest in somebody else's life, you become a team together. Uh, We we, we are no longer a solo act. We are working in, in harmony and combination. Sometimes you will talk about a team that plays together and they haven't peaked yet. What that means is that they haven't risen to their full potential to play like they ought to be able to play as a team. Well, sometimes we Christians haven't peaked yet when it comes to sharpening the lives of other people. Now, I like a team for a lot of reasons. A team sticks together even when things don't always go as planned. They just keep sharpening one another and pouring in to one another. I'm, you know, I'm sitting watching a football game and, and somebody does a dumb penalty. You know, and, and you see the instant replay, it's obviously a penalty. You know, and, and, I, and I say, could, why did you do that? That penalty could cost the game. But they get up off the ground and the other guys on the team, they're not chewing on him. They're slapping him against the helmet, patting him on the back as if to say, it's all right, shake it off. We'll, we'll get, we've, all, we've all been penalized at some point in time. We've all goofed up. Let's just get this thing going. Or you'll see a kicker come out and it's a real short field goal attempt, you know, and they kick it and they shank it off to the right or to the left. And, and I think, how could you miss a shot like that? Doesn't anybody else talk to the TV when, when you're watching a game? Am I the only one doing this? You know, and, and, and yet they'll get up, they'll come up, they'll pat the guy on the helmet or on his shoulder pads, and say, it's, it's as if they're saying, all right, don't worry. We, you know, we'll, we'll get that back. We'll, we'll score those points. Last week, you kicked the field winning, the game winning field goal. You'll get it again. You see, when you work together as a team, you pull together. You don't pile on. You pull one another off the stack. We all get penalized in life. We miss obvious opportunities that can make big difference. We all fumble the ball, and we dribble it out of bounds at some point in time. But team comes along, and instead of making us feel worse, they make us feel better. You need the team, and the team needs you. Sometimes you're the encourager. Sometimes you are the encouraged. You see... Regarding this proverb, there is another responsibility that we share, and it is true that while we need to be sharpening somebody else, we also need to be sharpened ourselves. Who is sharpening you? Who's helping you grow? Who is mentoring you across generational Lines. i got to tell you, I've got a lot to learn from our younger generation. i got a lot to learn, period. i got a lot to learn from our younger generations, and I love working with our younger people because I'm always learning something new and important. You see, if all I do is try to pour myself into somebody else's life, my, my blade is going to get dull, and a, and a dull blade is worthless. I need somebody to sharpen me. You need somebody to sharpen you. Because you see, when, when we are sharpened, it knocks the, the harsh edges off. It softens who we are. I have never learned how to sharpen a, life, a knife like my grandfather. Um, anytime my pocket knife got dull, I would give it to Grandpa, and he'd take his old whetstone out of the cabinet, and I'd watch him. It was an art form, and that stone was... Oh, it was smooth as glass, and the edges were were, were rounded off, and, and in the middle was a dip where years and years and years of sharpening a knife had rubbed across that stone. My wet stones at home, they're still pretty square and rectangular, with sharp edges, not grandpa's. I wish I had his stone. Just as a reminder that over the passing of years, God softens our rough edges as we sharpen other people's lives. God helps knock off the rough corners, smooths out our temperaments, and teaches us to endure through the tough times. Maybe, maybe that's why our Lord is called the rock of ages, the whetstone of ages. Because he's sharpening me. He's sharpening you. And softening the edges all at the same time. So how do we start investing in other people's lives? Well, let me leave you with just a handful of thoughts real quickly. Number one, be intentional. If you expect this to happen accidentally, it won't. You must intentionally decide, I'm going to start investing in someone else. Number two, be authentic. I'm going to say something... Now, I want you to listen to very carefully. If you cannot be real, if you cannot be authentic, if you cannot be genuine in helping someone else, then don't help someone else. Because it won't count. If somebody thinks that you're being disingenuous, that you're just doing this to check off a box on your entrance exam to heaven, it isn't gonna work, people. I'm here to tell you, they will know. They will know that you're being hypocritical, not genuine. And it'll do more harm than it will good. You won't sharpen anything. You'll just dull them to the gospel even more. And you say, well, I can't be genuine, so I guess I'm off the hook. No, you're missing the point. If you're not genuine, you've got a much bigger problem than the one we've been talking about this morning. That's a whole other spiritual issue there. Just step up to the plate, be genuine, be real with other people, and pour yourself into their lives. Nancy Holton, a 42-year-old resident of Switzerland, applied for a passport but was rejected. And and the reason she was rejected is that her neighbors think she's obnoxious. I'm serious. Part of the process in Switzerland for gaining a passport is the evaluation of your neighbors and the people who know you best. So if if the neighbors and friends think you're not good enough, they won't let you out of the country. Because they don't want somebody coming from Switzerland that gives a bad name to the country. So you're stuck without a passport. I like that. I think that's pretty good. I think maybe the church ought to adopt the same kind of a policy. You don't act like Jesus Christ, you're stuck inside these walls. You're not getting out of here. You see, it's it's all about authenticity. You want somebody out there who genuinely reflects the love of Jesus Christ when they're serving Christ. Be authentic. Thirdly, be caring. Go the second mile. Bend over backwards to make something happen. Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon.com, in a recent interview made this observation. He said, our customers are loyal to us right up until the second somebody offers them a better service. (laughs) The church faces the same challenge. People will be loyal until, well, they see in you something less than Jesus Christ, or they think they see in somebody else something better than what they see in us. Lastly, be like Jesus. Now, that sounds so, so simplistic, but really, that's the bottom line. Now, if you want to know how to live, how to act, how to invest in people, then just, just be like Jesus. Here's the problem. Sometimes the world does not see a big enough difference in us to note that we're not quite like them. You know, I, I don't want us to be different in a weird sense. I want us to be different in a winsome sense. This, this uh, past week, on March the 1st, Nebraska celebrated their sesquicentennial of their statehood. <laughs> and one of the Nebraska lawmakers recently recommended that they change the state flag, redesign it, Because for 10 days straight, nobody noticed that the flag of Nebraska was flying upside down at the state capitol while the legislators were in session. Now, here's a picture of the Nebraska state flag. I I can sort of see if it was flying upside down, you weren't paying close attention with it being a circle and much the same color. You might not notice. But there's something about being noticed for a good thing the world is flying upside down we are trying to right the ship we're trying to turn the flag right side up but if if we're so much like the world that you can't tell whether we're right side up or we're upside down how's that going to impact anybody you see when the world looks at us the the thing they want to see more than anything is jesus they want to see him reflected in our lives And when they see Jesus, they will allow us to pour into their lives. And that will be the best investment you'll ever make.